0: Hey, everybody. As we discuss in today's episode, this is the first of a two-part interview with our guest, Dr. Jeff Siegel. He is just a great guy and so much fun to talk to. I have to have him come back and do another interview with Dr. Wang. But because I didn't mention it during the episode, I did want to point out for all of you listening, Dr. Siegel has a podcast of his own. It's called The Medical Liability Minute. It's an exploration of modern medical legal issues and threats to physicians of all specialties, of course, including neurosurgeons. And while they're not currently airing new episodes, they have a huge back catalog. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Again, it's called the Medical Liability Minute. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, I am really excited to be joined by Dr. Jeff Siegel. Uh, Dr. Siegel is going to be with us for a two-part episode because he just has so much interesting history and experiences to share. Uh, Today, I'm joined by a guest host, someone who I've also been wanting to get on the show for a long time. He's another resident here at Rush with me, Dan Wolfson. Who was kind enough to point me toward Dr. Siegel as someone who might be an interesting guest to have on the show and explore his history, backstory, and all the exciting things he's doing now. So Dr. Siegel, uh, welcome to the show. Take a moment to uh, introduce yourself to our listeners and let them know your background.
1: Yeah, it's great. Thanks so much uh, for having me. So by way of background, I am a neurosurgeon, although it's been quite a while since I practiced and I'm rusty. I think if I went into the operating room, You'd have to praise the individual bold enough to go under uh, my knife. But my trajectory is pretty simple. Um, well, it, at least it starts off simply. I um, started off as a neurosurgeon, um, and like the rest of neurosurgeons, we spend a long time doing it. Four years of college, four years of medical, medical school, in my case, uh, six years of residency and one year of fellowship. So the first question is, well, why neurosurgery? And the answer is pretty pretty easy. I had a brother who was two years younger. He is two years younger than me. Uh, But um, he had the misfortune of walking into a robbery in progress while he went to pay for $2 worth of gasoline. So this would have been in 1980, I think. I'm sorry.
0: I said so half a tank for $2.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it went a lot further back then. I can tell you so, uh, but it, it still didn't fill the tank. That I can assure you. So he went in there, and um, unfortunately, the three people who were uh, robbing the store marched him to the back uh, of uh, the freezer and put him down and shot him in the back of the head, execution style. Before we go on, this has a happy ending, so, but I'll okay. but, but it, yeah, but it it took a uh, a long time for. For many things to happen, so he, um, you know, we got the call in the middle of the night. This uh, this robbery took place while he was a college student at University of Texas in Austin. And the call in the middle of the night said, "You better get here. We don't think he'll make it through the night." And um, then they said, "Well, if he makes it through the night, we'll operate in the morning." He did right. make it through the night. They did operate. They debrided. Uh, the wound. And it was pretty significant because it went into the posterior fossa and out on the left uh, frontal lobe. So um, significant uh, damage to eloquent uh, structures. And then they said, look, uh, we don't know if he'll ever wake up. And he did over time wake up. And they said, "We, we don't know if he'll ever walk or talk again. And he does have deficits. So, I mean, he speaks Slowly, and um, he is uh, hemiplegic on the right side, but he is able to walk and he drives. And um, if we fast forward, he ended up graduating from um, University of Texas, a Plan two program. It's an honors program, and they gave him a standing ovation when he um, when he crossed over. He likes to say that his gap year was one year of rehab, you know, sure. re- rehabilitation it took just to get him back on his feet. And uh, he married uh, his high school sweetheart, the uh, woman who was in the car waiting for him as he went to pay wow. for, uh, for the gasoline. So, and, you know, he ended up, he wanted to be a surgeon. He now works as a social worker at Bentov County Hospital in the head injured unit, head injury unit. So he counsels families that would have been like us, um, you know, because he had the um, the background and experience with that, so he's he's a he's a cool guy, and uh, and that had a profound impact on me. I basically wanted to be like the people that helped him. I wanted to deal with people who um, saved um, some of the most challenging, uh, or, or went through the most challenging situations with families, and uh, to try and uh, make a difference. So that's how. That was my motivation to becoming a neurosurgeon was, was my brother.
0: Yeah, so, and to telegraph a little bit where this conversation and where your story is going to take us, I, I can already see a pattern forming where your family has driven so many pivotal moments and so many decisions you've made along your life personally and professionally. I, I wonder, though, that incident with your brother, how old were you when that happened?
1: Right, so it happened in 1980. I want to say I was, I was just starting – medical school, I would have been 21, 22, I think. No, let's see. Yeah, right around there. I mean, I was, I was quite young. So
0: you were, you were already in medical school. You had the itch to be a physician and that pushed you in the direction of neurosurgery. Do you recall what you were thinking about doing before that happened?
1: Oh my God, I had no idea. In fact, I didn't know I was going to go to medical school. Um, I um, was in a interdisciplinary honors program, so it was mostly liberal arts, and I was a math, mathematics minor. I did work um, two summers at Texas Heart Institute in a summer surgery program where they certainly allowed us to do a lot more back then than they would today. I think the medical legal environment was a lot more forgiving uh, back then. And I found it fascinating and interesting, but it really took a while for me to kind of get my act together to um, take the medcat and to make the final decision to go to medical school. The, once I hit medical school, I honestly, um, what, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do until my brother's um, incident, and then I think the die was cast. I was, I was all in to uh, to being a neurosurgeon.
2: Very interesting. As a bit of foreshadowing, do you at this time did you experience any entrepreneurial or Uh, other kinds of interests at at that time, or was medicine uh, a big part of what you were looking for?
1: Um, so any entrepreneurial interest I had were mostly healthcare related to solve the problems that I had. So I, I, st- I, do remember my first year in practice. So I started off in practice in San Diego, I was there for three years and then moved to the Midwest for approximately seven years, a small town in Indiana. And, um, yeah, there, I clearly had a collection of entrepreneurial interest. So, uh, San Diego, I was trying to, um, create a, uh, surgical instrument to allow you to implant screws, um, anterior cervical spine with, it was just challenging with the instruments that we had. So, uh, created a Rube Goldberg, uh, contraption, but mostly for my use, it wasn't, uh, to be commercialized. And then as I moved to the Midwest, um, I, we were close to a, um a great engineering school. I never heard of it before until I moved out there called Rose Holman Institute of Technology. It's I would call it the MIT for undergraduate engineering. It's on the on par with Harvey Mudd and Rose and Rose Holman. I mean they they really are the two top institutions for undergraduate engineering. And it was easy to get ideas implemented. So one thing that was created was a set of loops that could be used without bending your neck. So it would recreate what a microscope uh, would do. One reason I liked using the microscope, not just for the extra magnification, but was the fact you didn't have to bend your neck. And I mean, you know, once you bend your neck for <laughs> in that crazy direction, you know, for 12 hours, it doesn't feel so good at the end of the day. You can imagine the cumulative. Um, challenges you have. Although I will tell you, and this is a, we're, we're going to zig and zag here, if you don't mind. I did have an opportunity to surgically dissect the neck of a giraffe, and I have its uh, part of its cervical spine in my house. And I can tell you that even with all the mechanical forces on that neck, there's not one bit of degenerative disease in an elderly giraffe. So that's a piece of trivia. I'll also tell you that um, giraffes, like all mammals have seven cervical vertebrae. So if you're ever on, who wants to be a millionaire and they ask you the question about how many vertebrae are in the, um, in the neck of a giraffe, the answer will be seven. And then you'll win your million bucks. You can write me a thank you note after that.
0: You, you've got the IOU already. I, I <laughs> have, to, I have to tug on that thread though. So obvious follow-up questions. Did you go from the front or from the back?
1: <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's a great question actually. So, um I had had an interest in doing this. The main the main rationale for dissecting uh the neck of the giraffe was not so much to get at the spinal, that was a uh, an incidental benefit. It was to dissect the carotid artery which ah. as I understand it is the only animal that has valves in its carotid artery. So, I kept I, I kept describing this wish to the people I work with. And then one day it was a slow news day in <laughs> Greensboro, North Carolina, where I live. And the headline of the newspaper was the giraffe died. So there's a large state zoo about 30 minutes from where I live. And um, it, it made the front page. They come in, they say, what are you going to do? The giraffes did. So I called the zookeeper. He picked up and I said, is it possible to dissect the giraffe? And he said, not possible. I go, how come? Said, said, well, the giraffe died uh, three days ago. We, ha- we had to incinerate it. He said, we can put you on a waiting list. So I said, <laughs> I said the natural next question was, is, is there really a waiting list? Right. Um, and he said, look, we'll get you on it. So I sat back, never gave it a second thought. And then a year later, I get a call from an unknown person. It turned out it was a zookeeper. And he said, your long wait is over. Ah, uh, one of the giraffes at the zoo died. It was a anesthetic mishap. I think they were doing a procedure to remove a bladder stone. I, I have no idea how they anesthetize a giraffe. It just seems like right. intubating a giraffe would be an impossible task without a tunnel, you know, to stick in the tree. I guess they bag ventilate it
0: it's like a clown car in reverse.
1: I can't even imagine. But anyway, um. He his next question was one I hadn't anticipated because I hadn't given it much thought. He said, "Well, what do you want us to do with it?" And I just said, "Well, just put it in the freezer and give me give me some time to think about it." Then he said, "It's a giraffe," you know, <laughs> meaning that there is no freezer large enough at right. that institution to contain it. So he said, "Well, just put the neck uh, in the uh, in the um, in the freezer," which they did. And um, then I had to find a place to dissect. And it turns out locally, there's a place called Carolina Biological, which is the world's largest um, exporter of laboratory specimens like uh, cats and guinea pigs and things of that nature. And I knew someone who knew someone there and they said, yeah, no problem. You can, uh, you can use our facility. And I called three of my buddies, you know, to come down to dissect, two of them showed up. They said, absolutely. Just tell me when and where we'll be there. So I tried to look at the anatomy on Google to see if there was a roadmap on how to make this work.
0: I do that a lot before surgery.
1: <laughs> Makes two of us. Yeah. And it turned out, um, Google did not have a, um, net, any netter drawings on what I could expect. So, um, the thing that I did learn is that, um, it t- we didn't really have the right tools to get down there. We ultimately got the job done, but the skin is thick and tough, mm-hmm. and uh, the the item, the anatomical items we were looking for, were much deeper than we anticipated. So this procedure actually took uh, quite a while. But once we kind of knew where we were, it um, you know went reasonably quickly. I will tell you that the carotid artery is a lot smaller than I would have anticipated for something that large. Um, the jugular vein is bigger than the carotid artery, no surprise, and the vagus nerve was right next to it. And so I now have that specimen, a specimen of the giraffe carotid artery, jugular vein, and, and vagus nerve in formaldehyde on our fireplace mantle. Like everyone, Right.
0: Right. Pretty normal. I mean, if there were ever an occasion for an O-arm spin, it sounds like you found one. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I'm so sad that the the day of the headline, I pictured you running down the street like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory with a golden (laughs) ticket. Um, But I I also hope that when they put you on a waiting list for a dead giraffe, they didn't get you on a different list with the FBI. (laughs) I mean, sometimes I worry when I Google things for work.
1: Um, yeah, no, no doubt. No doubt. I'm on those lists. It's probably for their amusement, but every any day now I can expect the door to, uh, to get knocked down. So yeah, that was one of these side detours. But um, we did have a couple of venture funded companies when I was in Indiana because Rose Holman had a nice uh, connection to venture capital funding. And again, it was just to solve problems that I had. One was uh, to create a automated scheduling system for the call schedule, just to make it as fair as possible and try to give everybody their um, their wish, and uh, we had hired a mathematician and we were chugging along with uh, people, and then of course hit the two thousand tech crunch when we ran out of uh, ran out of money. Um, so yeah, that was um, I, I certainly had an interest back then in the entrepreneurial world, and um, I think I embraced calculated risk. Uh, and then the next sentinel event in my life, and you alluded to it earlier, was something that uh, happened with my family and, and pushed me in a different direction. Um, my, I had a set of twins, and at the age of three, my son was diagnosed with regressive autism and epilepsy. And we were in a small town in the Midwest. I was pretty happy practicing neurosurgery there. It was two of us. And we were quite busy, but I didn't think he could get the type of care he needed uh, in that smaller community. So I, I must have called about 50 programs to try and enroll him in some type of um, behavioral modification program and found two openings. One was in Greensboro, North Carolina, and moved to <laughs> North Carolina pretty quickly. It was a, a very fast uh, decision. I had planned to take a year off, to focus on my son try and get him uh, situated and then you know once things had stabilized and we were back on on a more normal trajectory never became quite normal, then I'd probably just apply locally to uh, for privileges the hospital and perhaps join a group and um, that was the intention and in that one year window I became persuaded that a certain set of pharmaceutical compounds might help him and they were sitting on a shelf, uh, at University of North Carolina. Um, they had been uh, tested for other central nervous system conditions. And um, I think Bristol-Myers Squibb had um, done some work on it for Parkinson's disease, but they, and they had an option to continue working on it, and they took a pass. So I stopped by the lab, asked what it would take to move these along uh, into human clinical trials, and I said, well, you got to raise money and license the compounds. So, typical for a neurosurgeon is that I can do that, uh, even though I had no experience in the biotechnology world but um, I was quite motivated you know because I had a family member who uh, who was struggling with a very challenging condition, raised money, licensed the compounds, and started a biotech company in research Triangle Park and cool. we did that for um, for a number of years and then we sold the company to a medical device company uh, in, in the Northeast. And we had moved the compounds along from preclinical to phase two. So quite a bit on a shoestring budget. I, I will tell you though, I knew nothing about the drug development world. We had to, I guess, uh, co opt the support of uh, people with domain expertise that were quite bright. And um, the team really did make this work. I I guess with the benefit of hindsight, if I had, if I'd known what I was getting into, I can't say with a hundred percent certainty I would have done it. Only because uh, so much of it was unfamiliar, and the you know, with drug development, it's it's all or none. It's very there's very little in the way of in between. So you either hit it out of the park or you strike out. Very few singles and doubles.
2: You alluded to calculated risk earlier. What do you feel that you saw that? maybe Bristol-Myers Squibb didn't, and what were those calculated risks that you thought about when you were pursuing this venture?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So um, the the primary indication for which they were playing around with it was for end-stage Parkinson's, and I think most of the drugs that had come to market beforehand were for early stage. They were um, D2 dopamine agonists. This was a D1 Dopamine agonist. So it was a novel class of compounds. Um, Abbott had tried to commercialize an IV medication that was D1 and they just gave up. But you know, if you just looked at the the uh, video footage of animals that were made to have Parkinson's, they were given a toxin called MPTP, which is one of the tried and true models for making Parkinsonian animals and um you know nor- normally um if if you give them a high enough dose and they look like they're an end stage parkinson's they they look like they have a foot in the grave, and these are animals that didn't respond to levodopa, so i mean end stage end stage, but when you gave them these compounds, they really came to life um I honestly don't know why they took a pass on it <laughs> it's it, it's um it, it's it's quite stunning because um, for the preclinical test, it really seemed to check uh, all the boxes. And uh, I think what I learned um, about the pharmaceutical industry back then—so this is a number of years ago—was that a lot of it was me-tooism. They were just trying to create um, um, add-ons to their existing pipeline, and I didn't see a whole lot of risk-taking back then. Um, you know, I mean, now they they'll they'll um fund or or they'll just look at earlier stage companies and if it looks interesting, they'll just buy the company um but at the time and and things have changed over time um you know that industry has evolved quite a bit uh over time in particular their models of how they how they look at risk and how they're going to fund various opportunities but back then it was hey look we don't want a whole lot of risk we just want to uh to just have another purple pill something that is pretty close to what we had before but maybe a modest improvement something that we can command a premium price for
2: incredible if i'm sensing a theme in your story here it's that you know everybody faces problems and but when you see one it seems that you are pretty relentless about finding a solution one way or another and so we haven't even touched upon a large part of at least reading your biography, a large part of your career in the, in the legal field. So I'm curious, what problem did you face or what was uh, an inciting event for another pivot into what you're currently doing? And if you could talk a little bit more about that.
1: Right. So um, we ultimately got an exit with a biotech uh, company and it had been a number of years since I'd been in the operating room. I, I mean, I loved being in the OR. Perhaps I romanticize you know, the good stuff and forget about the bad stuff, but I, I really did miss it. But I thought it would be challenging just to go back with such a gap in time. And um, I, I said, I'll try something else. Um, I had been sued one time for what I perceived to be a frivolous reason. The single expert who um, testified against me had never seen or done the procedure at hand. Yet he was making a handsome living uh, testifying against neurosurgeons like me. He had actually been expelled by our professional society, the AAAS, for de- for delivering frivolous testimony. Yet that didn't seem to slow him down. Um, so I thought there's got to be a better way. But by the way, that case was dismissed about two weeks before trial. I never felt as if I won anything. I just felt like I lost less. It was very time consuming, very stressful, and you know, if for neurosurgeons uh, specifically, and Physicians um, generally, our reputation is everything, and when you know it's very different when a surgeon or physician is sued compared to the general public. Uh, We take it personally. Um, You know, certainly there are legitimate cases, but it doesn't take much to launch uh, a case, and it is an assault on reputation. And ultimately, if you pay a judgment or uh, or uh, settlement. Uh, that sticks with you for a while. You have to report it to all of the hospital credentialing um, committees, to the medical licensing board, to the um, insurance companies you do work with. And it just lingers uh, for a long period of time. So uh, you don't want to um, be cavalier about dismissing it. You've got to plan and prepare for defending against it. And if, if you do, you uh, if it's a good idea to settle, how can it be done in a way to mitigate the downside? So what I did with medical justice was to create an entity to hold proponents of frivolous lawsuits accountable in a number of different venues. And I've been doing that now for uh, for about 20 years. This has been uh, quite a trajectory. We've worked with about 11,000 healthcare professionals, and it turns out we're in good company. I mean, um, I, I can have a similar conversation with um, physicians. The conversation is their emotional reaction to being sued for what they think was in, is entirely meritless. And it's a very common visceral reaction. It's the same reaction I had. And the goal is to empower them, to allow them to take control. Um, the insurance company, the professional liability carrier plays defense. We play offense. So we don't replace what a carrier does. They perform a very um, healthy and productive role. Uh, we complement what they do. We can get involved early to try and mitigate risk. We get also get involved after a case once everybody has said bye-bye. And um, we, we can help doctor land back on their feet. I mean, we want to work with talented doctors and give them a long trajectory and let them know we've got their back.
0: You know, uh, we say so frequently in surgery, it's better to be lucky than good. And in a very stream of consciousness, zigzagging way, as you put it, um, this conversation has drawn right to what I think is a perfect place to stop and hit pause here before part two when you come back and we get to talk with you again, Dr. Siegel, with uh, Dr. Wang and talk about your current work and the way you are approaching your professional function these days. But I guess as a as a bookend and a good segue, a cliffhanger, if you will, but also just to serve my curiosity, I've talked about a few times on the show. I come from a family of lawyers. We did a series on neurosurgery and medicine and the law, and I'm always fascinated by the different mindset and perspectives that a physician versus a lawyer brings to the world, brings to work, and then specifically a neurosurgeon who is, by nature and by training, decisive about a physically real issue that needs to be physically repaired versus the legal mindset, which is reflective of physical reality, property, bodily freedom, damages, etc., but is in the world of ideas and words and argument. And so I wonder if, you know, as we bring this conversation to a close for now, if you could talk for a few minutes about how your mindset has changed. And if you noticed during the period that you transitioned from being a clinician to a businessman to now practicing in law, if you've noticed a, a change in the way that you think about things day to day and the way you approach a problem that might present itself to you.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So I've, I can speak broadly. I, I say that physicians are healers. Lawyers are warriors, fighters. They're advocates for their client. Their goal as a lawyer, your goal is to argue for your client's best interest. Sometimes it's to tell them when to fold and how to mitigate the damages to make something less awful for them. And other times it is to, to valiantly um, craft arguments using words and find a solution so, in an es- in essence, as as an attorney, and I'm an attorney now, uh, one of the chief preoccup- preoccupations is um, resolving conflict. And lawyers are for people who can't resolve their own conflicts. And there are so many types of conflicts physicians can get into. They can get into a conflict with their patient, their employees, or employer. Hospital Credentialing Committee, Boards of Medicine, National Practitioner, Data Bank. It's a long list. And um, being able to navigate through those domains and you know, allowing talented doctors an opportunity to apply their craft over time without some of these headaches that can linger for many years, that's, that's what I do now. Um, but the, my, you know, having the background in healthcare, understanding what happened that may have triggered all of these events and then being able to translate it uh, into legalese allows me to place a foot in both worlds. So it's a unique There aren't many MDJDs. Uh, there are probably a thousand of us across uh, the country and, and the vast majority do not practice law. Uh, the vast majority just, you know, are interested in it and, you um, just spend the time studying it, get their JD. Some will take the bar, but most of the time it's a lot easier to continue practicing as a physician um, because you're more likely to have near-term certain uh, employment compared to uh, being a lawyer. Um, but you know, there are certainly uh, a number of MDJDs that have done quite well in the legal world.
0: Well, that's phenomenal. Um, thank you for sharing that perspective shift. In the closing moments, I've I've been trying more and more lately to wrap these episodes with a little bit of levity and fun. And so just some quick rapid fire questions for you uh, that, that might bring a smile to your face or, or perhaps a laugh. From the story you gave us, it sounds like when you stopped practicing neurosurgery, you didn't know it would be forever. But do you recall the last surgery you performed in clinical
1: practice? I do. And it's interesting because I heard one speaker say there are many different activities that we will engage in. It will be the last time you do it, but you won't know it at the time. So there'll be a last time you go snow skiing, for example. Um, But I do remember this case because I knew that I had one foot out the door. It was a left-sided L5 S1 herniated disc on a skinny person. It was the ideal case to finish up on. (laughs) How'd they do they did great as well, as best I can tell. <laughs> I mean, um, they did well near term and it's often said that the best way to cure surgical a surgeon's arrogance is long-term follow-up. <laughs>
2: yes. And if you could go back one more case, which would it be for you?
1: Um, the one that I really enjoyed, um, there were a couple of them. There's one that was a young, uh, Was young. I mean, he was probably in his early 20s and he had a colloid cyst. And just from a technical perspective, that was um, a a beautiful case. It went well, you know, as well as it could be without any problems. As we know, um, you know, often in neurosurgery, you make plans and things change. As Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan till they get punched in the face. And welcome to neurosurgery. But this case went really well. And I would get a uh, Christmas card from him every year just saying thanks. And I think what neurosurgeons and physicians in general often forget is the impact that you make on individuals lives. So you'll work on them for 1 hour or a day and then you're done. For the most part you move on to the to the next patient, the next case. But for these people, it's their entire life and it's it's a um it's an impactful career and there's a tremendous amount of gratitude that patients and their families have. You you know, we, we collectively make a profound difference. Sometimes we don't stop to, uh, to pause and just take a breath and pay attention to that, but it's, it's the best job on the planet.
0: Hmm. And now I, I guess I didn't ask what, uh, what falls into your scope of practice now in the legal world, but so if you, if you haven't done this, then the questions moot, but, What would you say is more difficult, more stressful, more you're worried the morning of, walking into an OR or walking into a courtroom to try a case? Uh,
1: They're both different in many ways. I would say they both cause stress in different ways. The the challenge in the operating room was you often don't get a do-over. I mean, you know, you can, but if you make a fatal error, that's it. You're out chatting with a family and, you know, you don't get a second chance. In the legal system, you often get more than one opportunity. So, for example, if you blow it at one level, uh, there's probably an opportunity for an appeal. Um, You generally get second chances. Um, So, I think the legal system can be more forgiving. Now, having said that, there are people who are innocent, um, or, or more properly, not guilty, that uh, have their freedom taken from them, and that's a horrible outcome. So, um, it's they're both nerve wracking. They're nerve wracking in different ways.
0: Well, Doctor Siegel, I want to respect your time. That was so enjoyable, such an interesting and uh, varied tap dance through your past that's led you to today. Um, I learned a lot about giraffe anatomy. I'm sure our (laughs) listeners did too. Um, But as I said, we're going to have you back on uh, very soon to have another conversation with myself and Dr. Wang about all the things you're doing with your time now and how you're approaching life professionally and your personal and family life now. Um, I just want to express my deep gratitude for your time. I know it's it's late where you are. This is after a full days of work where you're at home with your family and you're giving us your time. We really appreciate that, especially given clearly how important family is to you. So with that, thank you for being with us on the Neurosurgery Podcast. I can't wait to talk with you again.
1: I can't wait either. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.